This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Daniel Volkowski. Daniel manages a 2,200 hectare cropping program across four farms in the Bearbung Valley, east of Gilgandra. With livestock absent from each property for at least a generation, Daniel shares with us some of the challenges he has experienced and the knowledge he has gained from continuous cropping in one of the region's coldest climates. You'll also hear how getting the best of weeds in the farming system is an important key for success. Daniel tells us how he goes about this by incorporating a number of tools to manage the weed seed bank. Daniel also shares with us why he is a keen supporter of the local crop competition and why he's an advocate of farmers learning from each other to get the best out of their land. Local Land Services Cropping Officer Tim Bartamote sat down with Daniel overlooking his winter crops for this great yarn. So Daniel, tell us a bit about Bearbung. What do you guys do here? We're just continuous cropping. We did tinker with a few cows, but it's a bit hard to find ones to trade at the moment. So it's pretty much all just crop at the moment. So I just manage for James Hassel and there's four farms up this valley and one out at Kerbin. What's it been like in 2021? What's the season? Every season's got its pluses and minuses. This one we can't really complain about. Got a bit too wet and cold in June and not enough sun, but it's turned out all right as long as we can get the crop off. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. A few people worried about that. So you just said that you're purely cropping guys. When was the last time you had livestock on this place? Serious livestock and breeders would be a generation ago. It's probably 20 or 30 plus years probably since it's had sheep running around, yeah. What was the decision behind that? Was it just cropping was the way to go? Or? The decision wasn't mine. It was long before my time really, but no, cropping fits well for us and it's a nice simple program that we've got. And what do you think are some of the pros and cons that you've noticed out of that kind of program? I think it's a lot easier. I take my hat off to those guys who do mixed farming well because there's always that compromise between the stock and the crop. When do you take them out? When do you put them in, et cetera? Whereas for us, it's really quite simple. We sow a crop, we manage it, we fallow the paddock and we sow it again and rotate and all of that. But it's really quite a simple setup. So it's more that knowing when you know when things are going to happen, you can plan in advance a fair bit. What's something you've been able to plan in advance this year, considering how the season's been going with inputs and things like that and different prices and whatnot? You can tweak your rotation a bit depending on what commodities are worth. We've got a little bit of summer crop. There's potential, you know, if it's dry in the autumn, we can put more summer crop or vice versa and we can play with things like that. I mean, it's hard too. Like if you've got breeding livestock, you get a bit attached to them. Whereas if you've got... <laughs> you just want to hug your cows in the paddock there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's purely cropping and it's just flat out dry at sowing time, you don't have to plant every paddock, do you? You can make smart decisions based on how much water you've got in the bank and tweak things from there. I remember us talking last season that sorghum has been a new part of this rotation. You just mentioned summer cropping. 
How did you come to that conclusion that sorghum was a good fit for you out here near sunny Gilgandra? For starters, it was a, it's good in a number of ways. One, it splits up the workload a bit. At the main harvest time and main sowing time, there's a couple of less paddocks to do, something to do in the off-season. It diversifies income a bit too. For us, really frosty little valley, it gives us something that's not going to get frosted. It might get blown out by heat, but it's not going to get frosted. It just splits that risk. And also from a weed control perspective, you know, continuous cropping, running to ryegrass and all sorts of other things, getting resistance. Whereas if we can keep a paddock bare for a winter for a change, summer crop, and then double crop back into chickpeas or something, we can really knock those numbers. And do you see a benefit from a disease perspective with sorghum being a biofumigant, potentially against crown rot and things like that? Oh, I'm sure, yes. In a number of ways, it helps the rotation. You know, by the time you've gone long fallow into sorghum, double crop back to chickpeas, there's not much crown rot left. If we then go from the chickpeas to canola, for instance, by the time you get back to wheat, there's nothing there, yeah. Now, you just mentioned Frosty Little Valley, and that's probably something that is a little bit unknown, perhaps about bear bung, how much colder it is than Gilgandra in general. And even in previous conversations, I've spoken to people north of Gilgandra. And so can you explain a bit more what it's like to farm in bear bung compared to, say, you know, 10, 15 k's as the crow flies? A little bit west of here. Oh, it's very, very frustrating. That's what it is, because we just can't sow anything on time. We regularly have frosts till mid-October, really, and so as much as I think a lot of people lose more yield than they realise by sowing too late, we just can't live by that too much in this valley, because if we have things flowering in the right window, they're sure as eggs they're frosted. We've got to mix things up a bit make sure everything's not flowering on the same day. But whatever the minimum temperature forecast is in Dubbo, at least three, if not five degrees below. So you can imagine on those days in September when it's a five degree minimum everywhere else and you wouldn't even think about a frost, it's at zero here and white. makes it very tricky. And it's also frosted to such a late part of the day, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It wasn't an official flash thermometer, but I put one down on the creek here or down in one of our paddocks near the creek this winter, and I think it was minus nine at one point through the night, and then it was still ice on the ground at nine, ten o'clock the next morning, you know, just in the shadows, you know, but it's just proper cold and cold for a long period of time each night, which means like whatever your sowing window for a variety is at Gilgandra, you know, curb and armatory, it's basically three weeks to a month later we've got to sow. But even then, because of the less heat units, things just develop that much slower too. It's not then just three weeks behind because we sowed three weeks behind or harvest where it might be six weeks behind. It's very frustrating. But just for those at home, I guess a lot of people use the New South Wales DPI sowing guide to determine when to sow particular varieties. So you're seeing like say, you know, a Gregory type that's supposed to go in you know, late April, early May, you're sticking another month. Yeah, so we've got some flanker, like that Gregory type. The first wheat we sowed in the valley this year, I think it was the 25th of May we sowed it. And it was cold and wet and miserable. It was slow out of the ground. It's 40 to 50% frosted now. The stuff we sowed like first week of June was probably spot on this year as far as just missing the last frost. Had it, you know, 5% frost damage, 10% frost damage, which is probably about ideal, really. 
And yeah, that was flanker saying early June. And that's pretty typical for here. Like I said, 10, 15 Ks away to the west, saying on that first week of May, but very different in Bearbung. It would be amazing what crops we could grow if we could sow on time, I think. If we could put things that bit earlier, I think this dirt in this valley would be amazing what it would yield. Because Bearbung isn't particularly shabby, if anything. Like you guys get cracking yields out here. I guess too, like as much as we've got to go later to avoid that frost, it also means it doesn't get as hot here and horrible quite as quick into the spring too. That bit cooler overnight temperatures means chickpeas and canola and things that can be flowering a lot later and coping with that heat stress while they fill. Yeah, one of the unknown truths about the Bearbung Valley. So what tools, you've just mentioned you use a thermometer before, what other tools have you used to assess temperature and when it's a good time to sow? Oh, look, nothing that fancy really. We're really just going off a lot on those DPI guides and seeing on what's happened in previous years and just that rule of thumb that if it says, sow this variety now, we'll leave it three weeks and then sow it. But otherwise it's just on that, sowing on that calendar really. I guess I was thinking about, because we did a, a little experiment, you and I, we put in a weather station in one of the paddocks that you guys look after and but we also put a weather station just north of Gilgandra and we compared the temperature over the course of the season. What was some of the learnings that you gained from that experience? Really cemented, like we always knew that it was colder in this valley, but it's hard to put a number on it and people don't really believe this half the time, I think, but it was good putting hard numbers on it and seeing that, yeah, it is actually that much colder and the, the duration of coldness overnight is pretty significant. Yeah, that's definitely something that stood out to me. I couldn't believe how cold it stayed. I think it was lunchtime. It was still kicking around that zero degrees in some part. And the frosts on the ground at, you know, nine in the evening, you know, so it's a very long period of being frozen. It makes it makes weed control a bit interesting in winter too. Trying to find a time to stick group A out, clethodum or something on some on some rye grass. When are you gonna find a time when they're not stressed or frosted? So it's not really a two or three dog night for you it's more of a two three jump a day <laughs> yeah that's about it <laughs> now you just mentioned ryegrass is uh, one of your main weed issues are there any other particular species of weeds that a bit of a battle in a constant cropping program that you have here the uh, milk thistle of course south thistle as everyone struggles with that it seems now over summer is always a bit of a pain yeah using more and more roundup on it Oh, the, the flea bane's not so bad now that we've got lontral in the mix, but umbrella grass is probably the other main summer one. There again, the old paraquat and balance brews doing a pretty good job on it and the odd strategic cultivation, but otherwise it's it's more the in-crop things, the, the rye grass keep giving us a headache. Because you guys run on control traffic mostly, so you're using a lot of summer fallows and that sort of thing. What, what are you seeing kind of the benefits but also the disadvantages of that? system yeah look like i said it keeps it simple because we know what we're doing each year we're following it each year and what the rotation is to what chemistry what residues and things are left over but being controlled traffic's now given us the opportunity to get a set of chaff decks and yeah we've only done that for last year was the first year using those but already starting to see a few things move onto the tracks so i think that for the rye grass is going to be a big help being able to just control those tracks those wheel tracks where the grass is differently to the rest of the paddock, yeah. You mentioned chaff decks, so harvest weed seed management. Can you explain to the listeners at home what harvest weed seed management is? What's the point there? 
rather than just controlling live weeds, trying to control where the escapes, where the ones that get through, seed ends up. And so either people doing narrow windrow burning to burn them or seed destructor on a header or something like that. For us, we're trying to take the weed seed portion that's coming off the sieves and put that on the wheel tracks because we're driving on the same tracks every year. It's a hard, horrible spot. I think they tell me potentially some of it will rot in those tracks. I'm not sure. But either way, we've put the weeds in a couple of stripes across the paddocks where we drive rather than spread everywhere. So potentially we could treat those different. We could run along and just squirt the wheel tracks with something nasty and not have to do the whole paddock. And even if we don't do anything extra, at least we've just confined the weeds to those wheel tracks where not much grows anyway rather than competing with the crop. So in a way, you've condemned these weeds to a prison sentence on your wheel tracks in an effort to really have a good crack at them. How have you gone with controlling those weeds in the wood tracks? What's some of the, you mentioned squirting with some particularly nasty stuff. What other, like are you using different application methods? To be honest, we haven't done anything yet because last year was only the first year. But yeah, it would be definitely looking at that, either just setting up the you know boom with a couple of shield sprayers so we can fry those tracks with Barraquad or, or just put Secure or something, Overwatch something on those tracks and not have to do every paddock every year with the dearest pre-emergence, but time will tell what works best there. And just to kind of get it in our minds a bit, what's the mechanics in the back of the header? How are you separating the chaff from the rest of the straw and how's that work in your your gear that you're using? So for our older header, it's a drum header, straw walkers, so it's simple there. Whatever's going off the walkers is still going into the choppers and being spread. What's coming off the sieves, we've just folded up out of some sheets of tin essentially, a couple of shoots there to direct that down onto the tracks. That was pretty simple. For the newer header with a rotor, oh, the kit we bought was an EMAR kit, came with a separate deflector plate or something they call it, which basically splits the stuff that's coming off the rotor so that the straw still get going out the back being spread, just that chaff sections going onto a set of belts and dropping it behind the wheels. Any difficulties in that process? Oh, it was all pretty, it all worked well, that particular kit. The instructions were terrible and we made the mistake of trying to put it on the week before harvest last year and it was a pain in the butt and everything just didn't want to work and this, you know, the hydraulic hoses that came with it was a slightly wrong length or need another fitting or, yeah, but it was all quite good. Just don't do it the week before harvest. <laughs> so a lot of preparation went in to make sure that it was working properly. Yeah, but then once it was working, it just sat there for the whole of harvest ticking away. We, once we got the belt tension right, it was... You just could forget about the thing basically and it just did its job. Are you concerned about heavy crops or a lot of plant biomass going through, blocking it up? Oh, there was some pretty big crops last year and it didn't seem to be an issue. No, no, it wasn't really a problem at all. It kept it away fine. I think in big heavy crops, mowing them off short, if you were doing the chaff lining, like just seeing the amount we were putting on each wheel track, if you were just dumping that into one strip behind the header, I think potentially you could end up having to burn that or have trouble getting through it the next year. But putting it onto the wheel tracks, the spray rig then driving over it for a summer, like it's, yeah, I don't think that's an issue. And thinking about spraying rigs, dust, is that being reduced with that extra chaff sitting on there? Or Yeah, it was amazing actually. Yeah, 
you're driving on this little bed of straw, wet, mouldy straw, and so there was a lot less dust behind the sprayer gear. So it seems like there's a few wins to involving an extra tool in the toolkit, perhaps. Oh, look, if you're on controlled traffic, it's almost a no-brainer because making something up can be fairly cheap or even if you've got to fork out the money for a ready-made kit, like it's it's not costing you anything once it's on there and if it saves you one hit of secure every so often or or a little tiny bit of grain yield or resistance coming a little bit further down the track, it's paid for itself very quick. And do you have an end goal that you guys are moving towards? Are you looking for a destructor of some sort or are you happy with where you're at? Who knows down the track potentially, but for the moment this is working well. And is it more, do you think, price that limits people going straight in to some sort of destruction method or yeah definitely i think if it was cheap enough there'd be one on every single header i assume but but no price and horsepower i think perhaps depends what how big a header you got but no this was a fairly the chaff decks were a fairly low cost way of doing the job so it gets your feet wet a bit gets your toes in the water yep and it's amazing you start to see just how many weeds what a big percentage of the weed seeds are going through the header there's actually very few escapes most seasons, I think. And even in these big crops, there's rain coming, you've got to mow it off pretty high. It's amazing how much ryegrass we still caught going through the bad patches because, you know, when it's a thick crop, a good year, the ryegrass is taller too. And in a drought year, well, no one minds mowing it off short then, so it's win-win. Something that we've been chatting about over the last few weeks is just how the crops are looking around Gilgandra and other parts of the Central West. Do you have a bit of an assessment of how do you think they'll go this year? I don't think there's too many bad crops around anywhere. Hopefully everyone can get them off. It's looking a bit wet and horrible at the moment, but if everyone can get them off, I don't think anyone will be too unhappy with their crops. Yeah, last year there was a, a lot more frost damage than people realised, I think, particularly along the Castle Ray or any lower spots, but I don't think there's near as much of that this year. If we can get them off and take advantage of commodity prices where they're at, everyone will be very happy, I think. Because I know that you're a big supporter of the local wheat competition and you like to go around and have a look at the different crops and things. Can you explain to people who've never heard of that before what the wheat competition is? Yeah, well, basically I help out with the show a bit and so I get roped into it that way. But <laughs> no, each year I go around with and assist whichever judge is doing it that year. It's a really good thing to be involved in, I think. it's um, One, it supports the show society. It's run by... ASC is it Australian Social Society's, you know, New South Wales. And it's a shame if people win because the, the best crop wasn't entered. It's good to have crops entered and and it's even good, you know, a lot of people enter crops that they probably know aren't gonna win, but just one to support the show and just to, it gives them a good idea of what their crop's gonna go to. Like they get to have different people look at their crop and chat and kick different ideas around. Yeah. Yeah, so tell me more about that. What things can people learn from being involved in the crop comp? There's always feedback at the end of the day. The judge makes various comments on each crop and there's always feedback sent back to the growers of, yeah, what one, what they think it's going to yield and, you know, how, how things have been managed. And what was something that you noticed in 2021 in particular about certain crops? Was there a lot of disease perhaps? There's a lot of rust out there. Stripe rust is just everywhere and in varieties you probably wouldn't expect. I don't think it's probably affected yields that much because of the soft finish we've had. There's been plenty of leaf there to fill heads anyway. I think one thing we noticed across the board actually was how narrow a lot of things were filling. You know, a lot of that yield potential set really early 
and a lot of crops early were struggling. One, they didn't have the nitrogen. They'd lost a lot of their end. It was cold. It was wet. There wasn't enough sun. And so there's a lot of monster crops out there that probably aren't as wide as they would be in a, in a more normal year. So when you mean wide, you mean they're not five grain wide, they're more like three? Yep, a lot of heads that are even two wide and a th- you know three wide in the middle and a couple of two wides at the top and bottom. Stack of heads there, big, sick, solid crop. We didn't look at any bad crops. <laughs> they're all good. But, yeah, it's actually some of them aren't as good as they look from a distance. I think the other thing, interesting thing too this year, or I've observed over a few years, in the dry years, the guys who are out on wider spacings, 13 to 15 inch spacings, obviously do better in a dry year. But in some of these big years, just the tiller counts per square metre. There's just only so many tillers you can get out of a furrow. And sometimes in these bigger years, the guys using a seven inch (laughs) spacing combine are just getting more tillers and more heads there just by putting things a bit closer. I actually should mention that's something that always catches me as I I do some of the the comps as I go further east. As you get towards that Wellington area, you should really factor in the tiller numbers because they're astronomical compared to further west and they're really coming home with cracking yields even though the heads themselves don't look that impressive. And driving past down the road, sometimes those ones on the bit wider spacing look impressive because in each row you can just see these massive big heads and they're thick but you can still see that little strip between each rows of dirt. Whereas in some of these crops might have been sown with an old school combine, they're, you know, you can't see the ground. Even though you can't see rows, they're just one big solid tabletop of wheat. So is it fair to say that new gear isn't always the best gear? Yeah, no, that's for sure. I think the crop that came fourth from memory in the district was sown with a 13 run combine. So you don't have to have the big gear. It just meant that guy had to sit on it for longer. And <laughs> <laughs> listen to a few more podcasts maybe. Uh, so what's your secret to estimating crops? How do you tell what's the winner? Mostly it's coming down to that mathematical formula, the grains per head and heads per square metre and coming back to the maths. But I think the more time you spend sitting on a head of yourself, you sort of get your eye in too as to what something's going to yield. But when it comes down to that, it's that mathematical formula it's pretty hard to argue with the numbers yes you're a bit of a human lie detector in terms of harvest yeah yeah. and there's times too when i've seen the judge put the numbers into the formula and go we all go yeah no it's not doing that or no it's a heap better than that and so the judge has to tweak it from there but (laughs) but for the most part the formula rules the day (laughs) so really it's understanding the numbers that you're bringing in and weighing that up with experience from previous seasons to kind of get the this is probably what it's going to go. Yeah, and it's about putting the right numbers into the formula too, isn't it? That garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. And knowing that sometimes too in a big year like this, if a crop is five wide, knowing that that fourth and fifth grain are probably half the size too can throw the formula a bit. The yield estimating formulas work well between like three and five tonne. When you get either side of that in a drought year or in a really big year, it's got to be a little bit of human judgment in there too. So would you have any final things to say to someone to get them involved in the next crop comp in Gilgandra? I heard one guy, because there's a lot of people don't enter, so there's sometimes very few entries. And I remember one guy saying the only reason he enters is so that he can tell the bank manager that he entered the wheat in the local contest and he came <laughs> fifth or something like this in the district. There might have only been five people in it, but he said it looks pretty good to the bank manager <laughs> Why that the money was well spent. <laughs> Let's just hope the bank manager doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> well, 
Thanks, Dan. It's been a great privilege to have you on the podcast chatting about farming. I know I definitely enjoy our conversations about what you're seeing in the field and I hope the headers are able to get through and the weather doesn't stop you and it comes out all right in the end. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hopefully this rain clears and we can hook in. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.